The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. This is the Leslie Marshall Show Millennial Takeover. Welcome. Uh, it's a big day here in Washington, D.C., everyone. We've got a ton of news that we have to cover today. It's a little bit hard to keep up. My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm the executive director of Generation Progress. Um, we're repping for the biggest and the most diverse generation in our country's history. And there is a lot being decided on the Hill this week that's going to impact us going forward. Um, I'm thrilled to have here in the studio today our guests. Uh, first with me is Sarah Barron. She's the Associate Director of Campaigns here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Of course. And then we've also got Ryan Collins, who just is running back and forth from the Hill. He's the Director of Government Affairs here at the Center for American Progress. How's it going, Ryan? Going well. Going well. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for taking time out of your busy schedules. Congress is going a little bit nuts and apparently might be in for a late night. Uh, the big thing happening this week in D.C. is the Republicans' attempt to re repeal the Affordable Care Act. And there's just a whole lot of stuff we can talk about on this one. But they've tried to do this many times before. I think the House last year maybe tried about 60 times. 65. 65. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, to repeal this bill. Now they've, they've got the power, they've got their chance, but it's not it's not going as planned. Uh, so Sarah, you know, can you just maybe help us paint the picture here about, you know, what the proposal is that Paul Ryan and the Republicans have on the table, um, what, which we're calling Trump care, and sort of who does it put at risk? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty hard um, to... Uh, to convey how many people in this bill hurts. I mean, kind of name the community or the constituency and this bill is a raw deal for them. Um, whether it's millennials, right? The fact that we know that that young people, uh, whether changing jobs, moving, they don't have consistent coverage. They're gonna be penalized for having to take a break in coverage. Um, older people are gonna have to pay five times as much as younger, healthier people. People um, in rural areas are kind of getting screwed over. Um, people with disabilities, um, women especially, um, you know, particularly particularly uh, lower income women are just getting slammed by this bill. And so, you know, at a certain point, it begs the question, what what's the point of this? Is it just to score a political point to try to repeal something you've tried to repeal 65 times? Or are you actually trying to help people with their health care? Because if you're really just trying to help people with their health care, this doesn't really add up. Yeah, totally. And it just feels like, I, I don't know. I mean, Ryan, I know that you've been following the different groups that are really going back and forth on this bill, but does anybody like this bill? I mean, who's who's coming out against this? Uh, so far, uh, we have have the American Medical Association, AARP, American Nurses Association, uh, the hospital associations, um, pediatrics, most of the disease groups have come out. Um, the only folks that I know thus far that are actually in support of this bill are the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Americans for Tax Reform, which is, uh, um, what's his name, uh, organization. I think it's Grover it's Norquist. Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist. That's Norquist. the one I'm looking for. And I think insurance companies are pr are pretty stoked about it as well. 
Uh, they're all over the place. I mean, yeah. they um, they 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 like some of the things that they're seeing in this bill. Uh, other parts are a little little bit more uh, disconcerting for them, particularly the stuff that's been popping up in the manager's amendment and stuff like that. And sounds pretty lonely for old Grover and Paul Ryan right now. <laughs> so when is this vote happening? Is it is it happening today? What's what's going on? It sounds like Paul Ryan's got a big big job if he wants to make this thing move. Um, yeah, so what we've been hearing is uh, we were thinking that it was probably going to be happening this afternoon. Um, the Freedom Caucus was up with Trump at the White House this morning. Uh, no deal was struck, so the Freedom Caucus is still kind of out there opposed to this. And, and for folks that don't know, can you just walk us through what the Freedom Caucus is? Yeah, so the uh, the House Freedom Caucus is a, um, a about 40 members of hardline Tea Party conservatives on, on the House side. Um, they're led by Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan. Um, they are really very much fiscal hawks, um, small government type individuals, um, and and have found that by holding kind of the the block together, the 40 members together, they have kind of a larger influence on the process than than other contingencies within the House. Got it. So, I mean, Sarah, you walk through all the different groups of people that are going to be harmed by this, but it sounds like, based on what Ryan's saying, this is now really the time when people need to be fighting back and reaching out to their their members' offices because this is sort of the do or die on this bill. Exactly, and I, and I I know that kind of every day in the Trump era feels like a fire <laughs> drill, and we all need to. Um, and we're all really right, really like, tired. <laughs> rush, and I know we're fatigued, but I really we really can't say enough how much every tweet, every call, every visit, every I mean any little tiny thing is is really making a difference. You've got folks who um, are tweeting that they're getting calls a thousand to one, don't vote for this bill. Um, and we put together kind of, you know, a one-stop shop um, toolkit. If you go to trumpcaretoolkit.com, it basically, and, and, and we're updating it in, in real time, has all of the all of the House Republican moderate targets that we think are on the fence um, that you can click to tweet a graphic showing how many people in their district would lose coverage um, with this plan. Um, It has a script, uh, their phone number, their Twitter handle, local groups in your area and in their district that you can connect with if you want to be doing more. as well as links to other graphics and uh, things to share on social media featuring people's stories. You know, I think it's hard to remember today when we're all scrambling to try um, to ensure that 24 million people don't lose their health care coverage rate that this was the seven-year anniversary of of millions of people getting their yes. health um, insurance <laughs> coverage. And I think that's right, such an important part of this. We keep talking about, you know, well, what if we just take away maternity care? Well, well, these people over <laughs> then, or what if only 11 million people lose their coverage instead of 20 million people? And at the end of the day, I mean, we've just, they've totally lost sight as to what this is all about, right? Which is that mm-hmm. today is the seventh anniversary um, of the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, I, it's not to say it's 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 perfect, but it gave health care coverage to millions upon millions of people who are alive today because of it. So I think that's Definitely. also, you know, a big part of when you're calling your senator or calling your House members today um, and tomorrow, probably with this vote, um, you know, also say, <laughs> explain that you're you're celebrating the Affordable Care Act. Share your story. I mean, it's really making a difference. That's awesome. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that you said, and I just wanted to pull out, how many people nationally are going to lose their coverage? So 24 million people will lose their coverage by 2026. Um, and I believe it's, it's 14 million, 14 million, as, million as, as next year. Right. So wow. in a year and a half, we know that 14 million people will lose their coverage. And again, that doesn't that's people that are going to lose their coverage. That doesn't uh, include the millions of folks who are going to have to pay 
way more for far worse coverage. I mean, it's literally paying more for less, even if you get to keep what you got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're just negotiating with people's lives. It's unbelievable. And I was going to say, it's 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 adversely affecting the areas of the country that that voted overwhelmingly for for Donald Trump. I mean, the the areas that are rural tend to have more expensive health care because it's harder to get services out there. They tend to be older where this bill would hit them hardest. Um, and again, a lot of these a lot of these services that would ultimately be ripped out um, are, are would be coming out of pocket. So you got to call your House member folks, and we've got talking points for you. We've got materials. Sarah, can you give folks the the website one more time? Yes, TrumpCareToolkit.com. It's a one-stop shop. Um, There's also a Google form where you can tell us after calling or tweeting what they've said to you, so you can keep us up to date as to where things are at, where we're we're keeping, or I should say Ryan is keeping um, a real-time whip count over here. (laughs) And I'll actually say um, we are getting very close, particularly, I mean, just excluding the House Freedom Caucus folks, we we already have about 15 moderate members that have said that they're voting against this thing. They can only lose 22. So, I mean, these types of calls and this type of pressure really does matter to get us across the finish line. That's great. So you got to be calling your representative because Donald Trump's going to be trying to get a hold of him in the cloakroom on the other side. So it's literally <laughs> pull, pull yeah. him the other way, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we're going to dig in a little bit more on exactly the different uh, groups of people that are really harmed by this bill and a couple other things that are happening on the Hill this week. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. All right, welcome back. You are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Takeover. I'm Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. i got two great guests in the studio here with me today, Sarah Barron, Associate Director of Campaigns here at the Center for American Progress, and Ryan Collins, who's our Director of Government Affairs at the Center for American Progress. Um, And they are both engaged in an all-out battle um, on the Hill right now because it is a busy day in D.C. Today is the day that... Uh, House Republicans are going to be voting on Trump care. We were just talking a little bit about why this bill is bad, who it's bad for, and what you can do about it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the secret. We're going to ask you at the end of this to call your representative. So just get ready. <laughs> get ready, and we'll give you the talking points now. Um, but we were just talking a little bit about how for a lot of people, uh, this, this Trump care proposal could feel a lot like a betrayal. Because in, in a lot of cases, it's going to hurt the people that voted for Donald Trump in this past election. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, so um, what, what this bill ultimately does is, is it decreases the subsidies that um, Americans would ultimately receive to, 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 afford, co- to afford coverage. Uh, they do that through tax credits. Um, what the Congressional Budget Office pretty much found was that these tax credits would not be high enough for folks to afford health care uh, like the current like standards of health care, they'd have to lose. They'd have to lower the actual quality of that care um, to to actually get to that place where it becomes affordable for those folks given those tax credits. Um, what that ultimately means is that insurance companies are going to lower the quality of their care, um, and they're going to start cutting around the margins. And again, where those are, those areas that they would cut around the margins because they don't make enough business are the rural areas, uh, underserved communities, the most vulnerable, um, because again, those are the most expensive areas of their of their business. And so these are adversely affecting, again, the rural folks, um, the um, 
particularly, and we can kind of get into this with this manager's amendment that's being floated around, uh, those folks who are trying to fight against the opioid epidemic, uh, mental health, all of these folks who rely on these types of services are not going to be able to get them. Uh, moreover, um, because they are reforming the entire Medicaid program through this bill, uh, a lot of the, by per capita caps and block granting the program, a lot of rural hospitals, a lot of states are going to be burdened with uh, overrunning costs of the healthcare system, and so they're going to have to find other ways to cut um, their uh, their budgets to balance them. So not only is this going to affect your healthcare, it's ultimately going to be affecting your education systems. It's going to be affecting a whole whole host of things. Totally, and it just feels like even with his budget, he's just decimating some of this infrastructure that you know allows people you know to like live and thrive in rural america it's you know rural hospitals but also ffa cuts that might close rural airports it's things that might limit school options in rural america it's just unbelievable i know cnn had a story that uh, i was reading about a guy named craig moss who was a huge fan of donald trump he he was the trump guitar guy and he went to dozens of trump rallies sold his truck so he could travel across the country and sing outside of donald trump rallies and it was because donald trump promised him that he was going to do something about the opioid epidemic and this was a guy who had lost his son to a heroin overdose and he really trusted that donald trump was going to help uh people like his son and and this this proposal this trump care proposal just cuts all of those um, funds that can help people who are struggling with addiction. Exactly. I think it's also, I mean, what's so interesting with this situation is sometimes it's kind of hard to hold politicians um, accountable for their rhetoric. They can be slippery. They don't always say things so overtly. That's not the case with Donald Trump. He was pretty explicit with what he was and wasn't promising um, while he was campaigning. I mean, there's clip after clip after clip of him saying, I am going to give more people health care coverage. It's going to be better. It's going to be cheaper and more people are going to have it. And it's literally the opposite of what this bill does. Um, so, you know, from an accountability perspective and from an action perspective, these are things that we can just, you know, we can hold hold his his feet to the fire on. And, you know, specifically, again, that opioid crisis, that was something he specifically said, particularly in states, right, that he kind of pulled out these upsets in, right, in the in the Midwest, in rural areas, in areas that, you know, people were lower propensity voters. A lot of people depending on his health care promises specifically, let alone the things he's going back on in the budget. So, so um, it's it's hard for him to run away from from the fact that this bill just is blatantly not what he promised. Totally, totally. And more and more on that, I would I'd also say is is that some of the ongoing negotiations that we're hearing uh, between the Trump administration and, and House leadership is is kind of the stripping of what they call essential health benefits. Um, these are um, th- these are part of the Affordable Care Act that cover maternity care. They cover. Uh, birth control, they cover mental health, opioids, and all of these things. And then one of the asks that the Freedom Caucus is really uh, pushing is is to strip these out of the bill. Um, they're going as far as to say is, is that um, this it's it's part of the bill is Title One, um, but it ultimately this, this is where uh, those who have pre-existing conditions mm-hmm. cannot be discriminated against. This is uh, lifetime caps. This is the all the all the good things that Donald Trump and, and Republicans always tap to say that these are the things we want to keep as part of the bill. Uh, these are the things that the Freedom Caucus is asking to be stripped out. Um, so if if Donald Trump ends up getting uh, to to make this his 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 art of the deal on this one, it's going to be at the to the detriment of everybody else. Absolutely. 
Um, and you know, if, if folks are sitting at home and they're thinking, "Man, my congressman, he's just a he's just a right winger. He's never going to vote against this thing. Why even bother calling?" It's not just liberals or progressives or Democrats that hate this bill, right? So if 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 you've got a conservative member and you want to tell them this is a bad deal and to vote against it, what 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 can people say? Yeah, I mean. Another kind of interesting position that we find ourselves in is that we're pretty aligned, um, you know, with the Koch brothers, with Club for Growth, with the Heritage Foundation, who's scoring this vote. Um, They are calling this Obamacare light. It's like both the folks on the way far right and the folks um, on the left and, and in the center are totally unhappy with this bill. I mean, we, just yesterday, the Koch brothers announced that, you know, for any conservatives feeling like they're being bullied to vote yes, that they would provide a seven-figure ad buy for them if they're challenged in a primary. I mean, that is crazy. Um, so I, I never thought that I'd be sitting here and saying, you know, I was excited that the, that the Heritage Foundation is is in on is in on it with us. But but that's kind of where we're at. You've got AARP on one side and, you've, and disability advocates, and then you've got Club for Growth, Heritage Action, you know, it's a it's a crazy needle that we're threading here. So that that's all the time we have, but it's a huge day. Uh, so call your congressman, tell them to vote against Trump Care one more time. What's the website for Talking Points? TrumpCareToolkit.com. All right, Trump ter- TrumpCareToolkit.com, folks. Uh, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm the executive director of Generation Progress. Um, and we've got a millennial takeover here on the show today on what is a very, very busy day in D.C. with a lot going on. Um, I'm joined here in the studio by two, by two great guests. First, we've got Lindsay Gibbs. She's a sports reporter here at Think Progress. She's going to be talking to us about the NCAA and um, a couple of the things they've been up to going into March Madness here. And I'm also here with Kyle Epstein, who does press for Generation Progress and is also here in studio because he is our resident basketball expert on the team. That's right. Welcome, Kyle. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Well, awesome. So I think, you know, tonight marks the the start of Sweet 16 in the NCAA basketball tournament, otherwise known as March Madness. As somebody that's not a huge basketball fan myself, you know, I kind of can keep up with this one. Um, But, you know, for all the fanfare, the excitement, I know all of you are thinking of your brackets. There's really a huge elephant in this room that is being ignored. Um, The final four and national championship this year, many of you may have seen, is going to be played in Phoenix, Arizona. And it's going to be played at the University of Phoenix Stadium. So we've been really looking into this because for those of you that don't know a lot about the University of Phoenix, this is a for-profit they call themselves a college. We call them a company um, that they they have been um, really using a really predatory business model that's left a lot of students high and dry with student debt without a degree that they can use or without a degree at all. And they really they don't have a basketball team. Uh, they aren't like the educational institutions that are largely public schools that are playing in the tournament. They just paid over one hundred and fifty dollars, one hundred and fifty million dollars to slap their name on a stadium um, to get that that advertising as part of this tournament. And, you know, the fact that the NCAA by playing at this stadium, you know, is sort of endorsing the practices of this really predatory company is is it's it's really troubling, but not something unusual for them. So. You know, Lindsay, we really wanted to bring you on the show because you 
do a ton of coverage on the NCAA. And we, we were hoping that you could walk us a little bit through, you know, why this pairing is particularly curious um, or dangerous in terms of a precedent for the message it sends about the NCAA's priorities um, when it comes to students. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you look at the problems with the NCAA right now, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities between the problem with them and the problem with the um the for-profit models and the University mm-hmm. of Phoenix, um, you know, they they can be very predatory. They can be very exploitative of their athletes, um, particularly uh, minority men, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that they're particularly making millions and millions, billion, over a billion dollars now off of without paying, without, you know, saying we're going to give you college education, but then um, not really allowing them to get the proper education because of the athletics. And and so I think that you that for me, I see a lot of similarities between the two because you have both organizations just have really exploitative um, practices. and and it's it's kind of in that way a match made in heaven, but it's it's really disturbing because the NCAA always says that it's for the athletes, right? It's for the student athlete. I mean, I was in a press conferences at the women's tournament the other day, and I was noticing that, Every time they introduced the athletes, they made sure to say student athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, they just stress that so much. You know, the student athletes will take questions now. The student athletes will take questions now. Um, but, it, it, you know, it really gets to the point where uh, do they have anyone's best interest at heart? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, f- from the perspective of a student athlete, you know, what is, you know, uh, Kyle, you're, you're somebody that follows this a lot. And, you know, what message do you think that this sends to um, these young men and women that are, are playing these games, as Lindsay said, without compensation? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's extremely dangerous. Um, as you said before, Maggie, the, you know, the, the NCAA is, is kind of de facto endorsing the uh, University of Phoenix and, and these predatory practices. Um, so I think, you know, they're exploiting the the population that they're you know proudly claiming to support in in the student athlete emphasis on the student of course um, <laughs> which is hugely hypocritical but uh, largely par for the course is, is what we've seen with the NCAA yeah absolutely and this is I, I think you mentioned this this is sort of part of a bigger pattern with them this is um, something you know they have gotten some positive press recently, uh, you know, regarding their public stances on a few political things. I know North Carolina and HP2, man, they they, they really got a, a bump from that. But, you know, uh, you know, across the different sort of issues that you've seen in your work, um, is, is there sort of a, you know, pattern of selective indignation when the NCAA is uh, deciding whether or not to weigh in on, on, on an issue like HP2, but not examining their own practices when it comes to their athletes? Oh, 100%. I mean, um, it, it, that is outside influence, right? Outside pressure is what they respond to or the bottom line. Um, and I think with HB2, they saw a real big chance to jump on um, to maybe win some PR points, and they announced that North Carolina, which is my home state, is not allowed to have any any games that are at a predetermined site. So if it's a neutral predetermined site. Now, if a team wins wins an opportunity to host a championship, mm-hmm. if that's the way it's always been done, that if you have the best record, you get to host the championship, um, then mm-hmm. that's still allowed to, to go on. But there are no um, predetermined 
um, kind of championships held. And that did win them a lot of points. I don't know that they thought that, like any of us, that this was going to be a thing that was still ongoing. I think they probably thought it was more of a message and this will get overturned quickly and (laughs) we'll all move on with our lives. But now not only is HB2 still on the books, but you have similar laws springing up in Texas. So Mm -hmm. the NCAA is saying, yeah, we would have to take all these games away from Texas. Um, But I think really that is a direct response to um, public pressure. I mean, they removed games from South Carolina back in the year 2000 because South Carolina still flew the Confederate flag at the state house. Mm. And of course, that didn't come down until 2015, but it was also up well before the year 2000. Right. <laughs> I feel like so, the Confederate flag was up in South Carolina for yeah, quite a while. Yeah. So, so um, that was very much a direct reaction to the NAACP making a lot of noise and holding a lot of rallies. And really trying to, um, you know, put the PR muscle behind pointing out how hypocritical this is. Now now that the flag is down, there are games back there. Um, but actually, just this weekend, we saw as the games are being played in South Carolina, ironically enough, the games that were supposed to be held in North Carolina, but that were moved because of HB2, mm-hmm. um, some... They called them protesters, but I don't really know what you're protesting at <laughs> the union. But uh, they called them protesters that were flying the Confederate flag. But it was at a public, you know, um, parking lot. But it was, it, 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 they had it so it was basically above the building, right above the arena where the games were played. The NCAA released a very lukewarm statement just saying, you know, we support South Carolina is, you know efforts for inclusivity or something really lame and tame and, you know, kind of moved on with their lives, not our problem anymore. And that to me is just emblematic of the bigger issue here, where if it's something they're for, you know, they can take stances and important stances. Um, I'm very happy they made their HB2 stance. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly, it's a huge cost for states to lose these games, but it's very selective, like you said. And in the case of the University of Phoenix, that's something you're not really seeing a lot of public pressure against. You're not seeing a lot of people rallying against. And I don't even know if they thought, thought twice about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, it does seem a little bit hopeful in, in some ways that it's, it's um, there, there is the opportunity to move them, right? Like right. if we if we make a big enough stink about this thing, there's there's a chance that we can get them to weigh in on this too. Yeah. Um, Probably not by next weekend. Yes, but yes. not by next weekend, not by next weekend, <laughs> but, but future, overall, yeah. overall. And I think I wanted to dig in on one of the things that you said, and this is something that we think a lot about is... Um, the sort of parallels between the groups of people that are being in some ways taken advantage of by the NCAA and the groups of people that are being taken advantage of by the University of Phoenix. Um, the University of Phoenix, you know, they are really, they market uh, their degrees to people who are largely first generation college students, oftentimes really low income, um, and people that have never thought of themselves as, as being college ready or thought they would ever have the chance to go to college. And they see a flashy advertisement and they get sort of pulled into this uh, narrative uh, with the University of Phoenix. And a lot of them end up with just a lot of debt. And, you know, a lot of those people are, um, you know, first generation college students of color who, you know, had their aspirations preyed upon by this company. So, I mean, you know, it just it, it feels like, Kyle, I know we've talked a lot about the University of Phoenix specifically, but there's um, bigger problems here with the way, sure. you know, the, this for profit college mm-hmm. in- industry is functioning. Yeah, um, I would say, you know, broadly, like you said, the the NCAA, they kind of operate, you know, under this guise of, of, uh, 
like a specious benevolence where, um, <laughs> you know, the they, they draw these hard and fast lines. Um, but like Lindsay mentioned, they're they're pretty lukewarm takes, um, and only when they're like super sure that, uh, that you know the PR side is is positive, then you know they'll they'll make the take. But um, you know, as it relates to for profits, uh, you just got to follow the money. You know, same thing with the NCAA. There's there's huge money behind college sports, and they're uh, they seldom uh, you know like to admit it. Like Lindsay mentioned, you know, a billion dollars in revenue, which is like just for March Madness. Yeah, it's unreal. Billion it's with a B. Of. Yeah, one <laughs> yeah, billion. Just make sure folks are here. You know, and like you know, all of these. Well, the, the vast majority of this revenue isn't from you know ticket sales and stuff. It's from television ads and and sponsorships, and uh, that's where this this Phoenix thing gets really you know hairy, is because um, you know they're just giving. University of Phoenix, tons of free advertising and, and marketing and prominent placement during one of the most watched sporting events uh, of the year. So um, I don't know. It, it's it's definitely a double standard that they're peddling. Um, but you know, without without any pressure on on you know their revenue streams, then we yeah. don't know what, yeah. what else we can do. Yeah, and I think that you know, uh, uh, I know I, I said this number, but I think it's worth mentioning again that the University of Phoenix paid over 150 million dollars, 154 million to be exact, uh, to have their name put on that stadium for 20 what? years. Yes, for yeah. yes, for 20 years, um, and it really, you know, it was. It's, you know, what is a school doing spending over $150 million on, uh, like, branding sponsorship? And I think that that, uh, what a lot of people don't know about University of Phoenix and a lot of other for-profit schools is they actually spend more money on marketing and advertising than they actually do on educating their students. So all the money they spend on teachers, buildings for classes or curriculum development or administrators or anything like that, um, all of that is well outpaced by the expenditures that these schools are spending on these flashy TV commercials, stadium deals. And I, I just don't think that's how a higher education institution should act. So that's why I don't call University of Phoenix a school. I call it a company. Right. Absolutely. And I think, once again, going back to the similarities, I mean, it is important to note that um, one of the, the biggest difference is that most of these student athletes do get scholarships, so they're not incurring mm -hmm. debt. And I feel like we should definitely mention that. Mm -hmm. But the ways they're being um, exploited are that they're spending millions of dollars on training facilities and flat screen TVs and the lounges and coaches' salaries and assistant coaches' salaries and assistant to the assistant coaches' salaries <laughs> and bonuses. And sometimes they're the highest paid in state employees, right? Yeah. For in their over 40 states. Schools. Yeah, yeah, in over 40 states. Yeah. They're often. And so I think um, you see them almost hiding this money, right? To keep saying, oh, well, we don't make up, you know, we're not making money from athletics, so we, we don't have anything to pay the athletes, right? And yet you <laughs> like look you're not around, making money because you spent it all, guys. Right, <laughs> you spent all of it, you know? Like, did you really need to completely rebuild your stadium? Did you really need to? And once again, this is money that not only isn't going to these athletes as, like, compensation for the money that they're bringing in, this billion dollars that is being made off of their performances, but it's also not going to help them for the education which is the one thing that they say they're giving, right? That's the, the NCAA's big line is that we're providing you with this free education. So that is incredibly worthwhile. And especially because, like we said, there are very similar demographics that are being preyed on. So it's a lot of people who 
you know, our our first generation uh, college families, and um, it's I mean, it's a large minority population. Which when I'm not saying those two overlap completely, but you know, I think 55% of the men's basketball players are African American, which is a much proportionally higher than the amount of uh, their black African American or black males in school right mm-hmm, now in mm-hmm. colleges, and so you're just seeing these that they're not coming out with an education, and this money is going to these flashy things and not to the their well-being yeah and i think one of the things that we talk a lot about because we we do have a student debt crisis in this mm-hmm. country 1.3 <laughs> trillion dollars yeah i, I know <laughs> it's a little, well, yeah. little too real for yeah, Lindsay. Yeah, 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 I, wish, I wish i wish people could see Lindsay's face when we <laughs> yeah. said student debt um, but i mean and maybe you could talk a little bit about this how you know a lot of these programs because they are spending so much money on that flashy stuff they aren't making money for the schools they're just another cost that's sort of added on to a public um, entity's budget and you know these are schools who are getting their support from their states slashed and grant aid is going down it's getting harder for people to afford college and a lot of that is sort of coming out the other end of this very <laughs> complicated system and unsustainable levels of debt for for students mm-hmm. um, going to college right now yeah absolutely and I mean look these programs are then used as a marketing tool to get other students to come right I mean how many students will go to a North Carolina because they've grown up kind of worshiping right the basketball mm-hmm. team and, and and found out about the school that way or you know we'll go to an Alabama because you know they've kind of gotten obsessed with the football culture there right or an Auburn right <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, you you see these programs used as marketing tools for other students who then come to pay them money, you know? Yes. So there's a better way to do it. I yeah. think, you know, <laughs> we, we want to keep these teams, yeah. but yeah. there's a better way to do yeah. this that doesn't take advantage of so many Absolutely. people. Yeah. And University of Phoenix just deserves to get kicked out because they don't even have a team. So... <laughs> Yeah, they don't have a dog in this race. Yeah, the, the athletic arms race. Although it will be interesting, there is one um, non-profit, one for-profit that's an NCAA school right now, and it's going to be interesting to see in the future if more, um, if if regulation keeps going down, which it seems like mm-hmm. I don't know, it seems like it might. Well, there, there's there's a lot to fight on this to make sure that our schools don't don't keep operating like businesses yeah. and it doesn't get worse, but. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay and Kyle. Uh, We really appreciate you being uh, in the studio with us today. Um, We're going to kick it over to the Capitol um, in in just a second um, to get an update from what's happening over there. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Maggie Thompson from Generation Progress. um, And we have Justin Duckham from Talk Media News, who is live from Capitol Hill, to give us the latest on Paul Ryan's Vote, non-vote on Trump Care. Uh, Justin, are you with us? Hey, doing pretty well. How are you doing, Maggie? Good. It seems like a busy day over there. Um, can you give us the latest on what's happening with the Republicans' um, attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act? Well, where to start? Uh, right now, we're hearing from uh, senior White House officials that apparently the vote is going to be delayed uh, for scheduling reasons. That's kind of a sign that the votes just aren't there yet. And hope that they can get those votes is, uh, you know, certainly in doubt. Uh, the president actually just spoke to um, truckers who had come to the White House to voice their support for health care reform, kind of a political prop situation. And huh. he seemed, Wait, uh, you mean like trucker, like long-haul truckers? Yeah. Uh, huh. Appreciations from uh, trucker groups and uh, 
you know, did a little um, pool spray with them. But he, uh, during that meeting, expressed confidence that the vote was going to go on as planned, uh, but was apparently unaware of the changes that had been made. So where we stand right now, there's uh, still an effort to try to get some of the no votes into the yes column. But there's just a lot of confusion, particularly because the changes they made into the bill uh, late last night. Man, you'd think that somebody over there would have a text chain so they wouldn't <laughs> talk, like they get their schedules straight. Um, so so it sounds like, I mean, you know, we were talking to people in our last segment telling them they should still be calling in that this thing um, is, uh, you know, still up in play. And so it sounds like that still holds. Uh, exactly. Yeah, this is a... Um, you know, scenario that we've seen a couple times on the Hill in the past couple of years, um, this sort of acknowledgement that they don't have the votes ready to go. If you're the Speaker of the House or if you're the Majority Leader or the Majority Whip, the last thing you ever want to do is bring a vote to the floor when you don't have the votes and you're not confident that it's going to pass. That always leads to um, an embarrassing situation where you have to essentially go back, rework the bill, start from square one, um, all while looking like you just had a major defeat. And that's obviously what they're trying to avoid today. Uh, and if they can't do that by the end of the day, there's a very good chance that this could be postponed until Monday. Give people over the time uh, the weekend over the weekend time to think about this, time to reassess it. All right, call your congressman, folks. Thank you so much, Justin. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply.